this is one of those scenes, and this is so hard to do in this day and age. This is one of the scenes that like, I just, I'm like, I'm never going to forget seeing this. Mm-hmm. And for Mike Flanagan to pull that off, you know, it, it's really incredible. And I think this is going to be a scene that our, it, we're going to talk about with Flanagan and his career going forward, because I, this was really something. Welcome, friends, to episode 289 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week, we discuss the first half of Mike Flanagan's 2023 series, The Fall of the House of Usher. Happy Halloween, everyone. Uh, We are here. I hope that you're having a spooky one and you're going to have some candy and and watch some scary movies tonight or, you know, go trick-or-treating, go partying, have a great time. Literally today, it it is October 31st upon recording this. So a, a perfect day to get into this show. Um, I watched The Mask of the Red Death episode two last night, like kind of bringing in the holiday. And then nice. today, earlier today, I watched episodes three and four. So I've it's been it's been my Halloween so far, and I'm really enjoying it. So far, just to immediately jump into the, the show, talk a little bit. It's this it's a fun horror show, right? Like it's not taking itself too seriously. It's adapting Poe's work taking some liberties, but still like kind of, um, you know, modernizing things, but then also having fun with it and being referential. Yeah, definitely a lot of fun. More than just liberties. This is like, that's the one thing. Like I can see people being frustrated if you want some sort of a faithful adaptation of these stories. One-to-one gothic horror, like very Poe. I can, I can definitely see that too. Yeah. But this, this isn't, isn't that it wasn't going to be that in much in the same way that with the haunting of Hill house, this is more of like a pastiche or something, right? Like it's it's inspired by loosely adapted from um, and and I remember I kind of bumped up against that with the with uh, the Haunting of Hill House because I wanted a little bit more faithful um, during our coverage. But then I kind of came around to what he was actually doing. I think from the jump here, I'm a little more on board. I kind of now that I've seen that kind of an adaptation from him. I was more on board with with what he was actually doing. And uh, I think this material really lends itself to that. Um, you know, I'm having a great time real quick. I am not in my usual space. As you can see, if you're on YouTube, um, I am, I'm visiting my brother, uh, down in Florida for, uh, my, my grandfather's funeral actually later this week. Um, I was just in Kansas city for world fantasy. Uh, so I've been traveling. That's why I'm also watching everything like right up to the last minute. Um, but we wanted to get our episode out still and continue doing that. Um, so we, you know, make it work. Uh, I traveled with my mic, so I can I can hopefully have decent audio while I'm here. And it's Halloween, right? Like we want to make sure we get a, an episode out for Halloween, and and absolutely we just took some time off recently. So it's cool to it's cool to be in the in the headspace uh, when everyone else is. The way we've covered this so far, our first episode was on three post stories that are kind of mentioned in passing, but most of what we're going to be talking about today are the episode titles that correlate with. The post stories, so, the mask of the Red Death, uh, the Black Cat, and um, murders in the Rue Morgue. And then last yeah. week uh, for our first episode, actually on this coverage, where we just talk about Edgar Allan Poe. And if you're curious about him as an author, that's the one to listen to. Um, we cover uh, the the titular um, Fall of the House of Usher, and then also the Cask of Montiato and the Raven, just as a poem. And honestly, I'm really glad that we got those three in the bank because I feel like all of them have been pretty important early and I assume will continue to be important throughout. Um, so it was, it was good ones to know. And then 
everyone we've covered you can clearly see all this influence you can see what he's what he's touching on here the references yeah um again it's not a true adaptation of the stories but you know in in, in a in a like removed sense it is it's it's inspired by there's certain like archetypical things that he he draws out of the stories that he brings into the into the show the three that we read last week it's cool because they're kind of the overarching story. Like there's themes from those three stories that are threaded Seems in. Seems like it, yeah. And then each of the episodes seem like it drills down on, you know, the Black Cat or Mask of the Red Death in and, and, and really interesting ways. It's really cool how he's doing it, honestly. Really clever. Um, oh, speaking of the coverage, next week we are excited because we are going to be having a guest on, assuming that everything works out with scheduling. Uh, John Langan is going to join us for the last four episodes of the show. So stay tuned for that. But this week, we're just talking about the first four. We haven't seen the second half of the season yet, so we don't know what happens. We won't be able to spoil any of that other, outside of what we know about Poe's stories, which we might reference some, I guess. Yeah, I'm excited to hear John Langan's thoughts on on this because it, it is horror adjacent. Like, the, like it, it is horror. Like, it it's is horror, gory, man. This is, yeah. But but I guess I'm saying it's Poe adjacent is what I should have said. If you, if you came in expecting, like I said, this to be like some gothic, very like atmospheric and don't get me wrong there's some good atmosphere here with with this these stories but like it's not that but it's kind no. of a fresh take on that you know every, i feel like so many people have read poe and are so familiar with poe that like a reinvention of his work is kind of novel and it's a it's you know it's a fun exercise and i and again that's what the show is to me is it's very fun I'm, surprisingly I'm, you know, fun yeah I, I i'm having a good time with it and like that's not to say it's not scary and it's not sometimes upsetting off-putting yeah. um disturbing i would say is a word that, that 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 you know is appropriate for a lot of the stuff we've seen and flanagan is the is the you know the brain behind this this adaptation here he's the showrunner this is even a departure for him like this doesn't feel like haunting of hill house which was much more no. atmospheric and scary in nature this is like almost like bloody gory like just throw it all at the wall and just like go crazy with like, like let your let your horror flag fly kind of thing yeah, it embraces it. It's uh, you might call it a little bit campy in that way. Like it's 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 um really embracing horror as a genre and having fun with it. And honestly, I think this kind of works naturally with his style because one of my occasional criticisms I've had for some of his adaptations is that they're not as quiet at times. Like The Hunting of Hill Heights, it, it felt a little bit over the top to me when you compare it to the very subtle very subdued horror of the novel, which I love. Um, whereas this, like, he's making this tone really work. Um, and I did come around on that. Uh, if you want to listen to our coverage of that, you'll you'll see me go through a journey of it. I'm yeah. not going to, like, relitigate all that here. But I did actually, I'm a big fan of that adaptation, for the record. It's a good a good moment to mention, too. Like, this is a revisit for Flanagan. We've we've talked about Flanagan with Dr. Sleep. Yeah, and Dr. Sleep, when he, when he covered the uh, Stephen King uh, sequel novel to The Shining. We had fun with that the one. The Kubrick film uh, too. He kind of sequelized both. Kind of did, really, yeah. Really cool. Yeah, it's an interesting one. De uh, definitely check that out. I think we talk about more, uh, or we talk about him more as a filmmaker in that episode. So if you're curious about that, um, I'll, I'll point you back to there. But yeah, just generally, man. Before we get into it, we're gonna go through episode by episode. Some just overarching thoughts, some overall reactions that you want to get out of the way and, and start off here. I think that the degree of difficulty to tie together all of Poe's stories, they were never meant to kind of yeah. thread together in this way. But uh, you know the way that they do? They do in the sense that there is an overarching thematic resonance through a lot of Poe's work. And we, yeah, he, he talks about madness. He talks about guilt. 
death. And he talks about the way that guilt can drive you mad. Yeah. And he talks about like, you know, these like once grand things, whether it's families or structures crumbling. He talks about being entombed. Like there's a lot of things that come up time and again in his work. And, uh, the, you know, the wealthy being disconnected from or, you know, uh, in opposition to the, like the middle class. And man, are we seeing all of that play out? So I love that he took all of the like overarching themes of, of, of Poe's body of work. And it's like, that's going to be the gel that holds all this together. Yeah, it's definitely not a way that I would have thought to interpret this work. And and uh, just like I said, to make it neatly fit and still to kind of please Poe fans. And again, I think that people view Poe if you, like typically, as far as I know, in America, people are first exposed to Edgar Allan Poe in school in, in different ways. He's one of those type of authors that's that's like in education. People are he's used as an example. So a lot of people are familiar with his work, whether they love him or didn't like him or th they were kind of forced to read him. And so taking that and putting it into a show where people are like kind of I think it's a space where you can get experimental. And I think that's what he's doing with with this these stories. But um, yeah, getting all your ducks in a row to tell this as one narrative is it, that's tough to do. And I've been really impressed with how like uh, compelling it's been, because I, I feel like at different times I was like, oh, this episode's probably going to leave me kind of it might be a down episode and, it, and I haven't really run into one that I was like, that's the worst episode. They all kind of feel in the same realm in terms of quality. It feels like one story, even as we are adapting these individual stories um, loosely, right? Mm -hmm. um, I totally agree. It's, it's pretty impressive the way he's been able to tie it all together. Probably the thing that has impressed me and surprised me the most is how I feel like this story that is an adaptation of all this work from the 1800s feels so modern and feels like it is actually saying something interesting about our present society and our present world. And it's this like really interesting critique of American capitalism and the American dream, if you wanna say, and like what it is that people who are especially atop these pyramids, like billionaires, what they do, how they live, what they're actually responsible for in our society. Um, it, it's really cool to see him do all this modern stuff. And it feels like, you know, we're, we're talking about these families that think they're above the law and are getting away with all these crimes and are just so unrepentant. And I just kept thinking about the Trump family. <laughs> and like, sure. as I'm watching it, I'm like, yeah. he's talking about this, right? Like he's talking about people who feel like the law doesn't apply to them. And he's also looking at the idea of the money people and how, for whatever reason in America, we put all this like weight on these people who all they have is capital and they're just dishing it out and developing things by lending money to it, but they're not actually the ones making it. And I love that that keeps coming back to the heart of it too, of like, no, you're not actually worth anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like, you're, you're like, you're like a, a symptom of a sick system and you're just finding ways to exploit it. And all of these characters fit into that. Yeah, and, and I would credit Poe too for writing stories that would be multi-generational, you know, that would carry through as like, that's pretty prescient. To know that some of these things are just universal human experiences, it's kind of, it, was a, it can be depressing. It's, a, it's the story of America, right? Like even yeah. early America, we had this, we had people taking advantage, you know, if, I, this is predates the Rockefellers, but just going back to like these big families who, who through their wealth, however it's obtained, you know, are able to control things going forward, whether or not they actually should be, and they actually have any thing to contribute, they're still there because once they're in that position of power, they become so entrenched and 
um, they're kind of unstoppable. And, and that's the story of our country in so many ways. So many billionaire families and uh, they, who create these like dynasties where they pass their wealth on to their children who didn't do anything either. Um, and now all of a sudden they have all this power that they didn't earn. Um, you know, even if you could say that somebody was to earn it, like it, so many of these families are, they go back, you know, all these years. It's really interesting to see such modern themes and such modern ideas yeah. coming across in this Edgar Allan Poe adaptation. I did not expect it, um, but I'm loving it. And I think it feels less gimmicky than I would have expected if you told me that you're just going to modernize some some of the time you're like, oh, we're just going to, you know, we're doing Hamlet again, but we're going to do it this way. And it's going to yeah. be this modern thing. A lot of times that can be very gimmicky. It doesn't really feel like that. It does feel like you said, a bit campy at times. Um, but I think the show's aware of that. I mean, it leans into it, right? We got thunder and lightning at times. And like the, the images are just so like classic horror. It feels like you're in a haunted house sometimes with some of the scares. And but man, it's working. Like, I don't know how it's working so well, but it is for me. Um, and even even a lot of the stuff, you know, in, in that house that we're in with with the conversation he's having with uh, Lupin, it's it's kind of over the top campy at times, but like it, it continues to work for me. And they do just enough to like, justify what you're seeing. So I think we should definitely talk about the cast too before we move forward because uh, Flanagan loves to to work with the same people and I think he's found a group that he loves and just seeing like Carla Gugino again, another actor that was in Haunting of Hill House. Um, we see Henry Thomas of E.T. fame for anybody who didn't know that. Um, <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah, the, the little boy from, from E.T. Uh, but yeah, he was also the father, the, I think the younger version of the father in yeah. um, Haunting of Hill House. Yeah, um, I recognize him. Raul Coley is, is uh, Leo in the show, Leo Usher, and he's, he was in um, Midnight Blind Mass. Blind Manor, I hear. I haven't seen that one. Oh yeah, he was in Blind Manor as well. So yeah, I just I like to see filmmakers who work with the same people. And then of course, Kate Siegel, who's actually married to Mike Flanagan to see her returning. And yeah. she's always, they always pick the the... the really fun roles for her to, to play <laughs> thought she had a fun yeah. one in you could tell you could tell he was having fun with that but then you bring in luke skywalker mark hamill's here as Arthur mark Penn. hamill killing it killing it such an unusual role for him but kind he's, of yeah. he's destroying it man i mean at least at least what i expect from him right yeah he he like post luke skywalker was the joke the, the, the voice actor for the joker for such That's a long true. time and he you know he's got those chops and i love seeing him do this like really interesting weird uh, yeah. character that he's doing him uh, yeah. supposedly arthur pym is a character i read character from a novel that that poe wrote so it's like really? another character that's being pulled in to this over you know this overall i would have bet that honestly because every character every name you get in this show i feel like is a reference or a specific you know tie to a story um, every side character like you know the granddaughter's name is lenore You've got um, the the priest is like reading um, he's or he's like reciting something when they're in the church and ends up being it's this for Annie poem by Poe. Like it, 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 everything is tied into it in some way. You know, Fortunato, the name of the company, as we know from our cask of Amontillado yeah. coverage is an important name. We have Prospero. We have. Um... Yeah. All the kids names are like references to something. Yeah. Yeah. All these characters are, are names from like uh, uh, August Dupin. Our, yeah. our main investigator is in Murders, uh, Murders in the Rue Morgue. Right, yeah, he's in a few stories, actually. So we touched on this last time a little bit, but like Edgar Allan Poe invented the detective story and with this character. Yeah. And this character would go on to be the inspiration for Sherlock Holmes and like so many others that would follow. And you can see all the bones of it in that story when we read it. And like you see it in this character and 
he's also positioning this whole series as an investigation of sorts. Like there's certain frames that he's using that is really smart and recognizable, I think, for people who are coming in. You get a sense of like, oh, okay, whatever else is going on, we're following an investigation. And you mm-hmm. kind of know what that's going to look like. And you kind of can see what how that might play out. Uh, and people are very familiar with that that type of story these days. But for this to sort of be the, the beginning of that is so mind-blowing to me. I, I, I mean, like I hadn't read Murders in the Rue Morgue. And reading it, I was like, oh, my God, it feels like Conan Doyle. It feels like Agatha yeah. Christie. It feels like that sort of like Sherlock Holmes-esque person. And you've got your Watson uh, person that you're bouncing, like that's writing the story. And you're like all, you know, it's just it's fascinating to think that that he was the beginning of this. Um, and I, you know, I assume that he was in some ways influenced by people who came before that were like touching on similar kinds of things. But yeah, like you said, I was in my yeah, research. Yeah, I don't and everything. know. I'm not like a not like an expert in that kind of fiction, but I I just see him credited as having det- has having invented it, and I assume that's you know maybe just certain hallmarks of the genre that are now mainstays. You see so many of them in Murders in the Rue Morgue, which we'll get into more when we get to that episode. Definitely. Um, but yeah, I mean, laying out of the evidence, laying out of the potential suspects, uh, you know, a, a character who's like very rational and using his power of deduction to mm-hmm. figure out what happened. And then he reveals it, you know, like that is all hallmarks now of detective fiction. Um, you know, and here we get it with this uh, assistant prosecutor, like a district attorney, something like that is his his role. He's not actually a cop. Um, but I kind of like that, right? Like he, he's instead somebody who is like a lawyer. And so we also get a courtroom scene that's playing out, which is another, I don't know if like Poe usually has anything to do with courtrooms, but it's kind of a cool familiar space that we can, we can, uh, trust that we're going to return to throughout the series. So I like that too. Yeah. And the way that there's the, the big reveal, the brilliant setup and, and the misdirect that you probably wouldn't have seen coming just like as a reader, being sent on that journey it feels so yeah. much so familiar in the, at in the that time way. that had to be completely mind-blowing to people for sure <laughs> we'll, we'll get into that when we get to the episodes I, I think we probably need to move into them because we we got four episodes to cover and we don't want this episode to get too long yeah so the first episode is called a midnight dreary it's directed by mike flanagan he directed all the episodes other than the episodes that were directed by Mike Fimanari. Roderick Usher, the corrupt CEO of Fortunato Pharmaceuticals, has lost all six of his children. Heir, Frederick, entrepreneur Tamerlan, surgeon Victorine, gaming mogul Napoleon, PR head Camille, and socialite Prospero in a span of two weeks. He attends the funeral of the oldest three, the last ones to die, accompanied by his sister and Fortunato COO, Madeline, his wife Juno, his granddaughter Lenore, and his lawyer Arthur Pym. He sees the ghosts of his dead children and collapses, muttering, it's time. He invites his nemesis, Assistant U.S. Attorney C. August Dupin, to his childhood home to confess his crimes and reveal the reason behind his children's deaths. In 1962, Roderick and Madeline's mother, Eliza, died but resurrected to kill her abusive employer, Fortunato CEO William Longfellow, their biological father. In the present, a trial begins to hold the Usher family responsible for the deaths of thousands of people who were taking Fortunato's drug Ligodone and for causing the opioid epidemic. Dupin mentions an informant within the family. Roderick recounts a fateful encounter with a mysterious woman named Verna who foretold a life-altering change for the siblings during New Year's Eve 1979. Yeah, it's interesting how this that little summary kind of places things chronologically. I wasn't quite sure of the order of events at times. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of different moving parts. This is kind of a complex 
um, story in the sense of the way that it's structured. We have lots of flashbacks. Um, it's it's it, it could be a little disorienting, but I think it's handled well, and I think it's laid out in a way that is, you know, you can follow it. Yeah, a lot of different timelines going. We have this 1970s timeline. We have sometimes we'll flash to Roderick before the trial started and before his children right. were, were dead. And then we get when his children, like that whole scene with the funeral a few times and that yeah, the, the surrounding time. And then all the stuff that happens in the intervening time. And then we get the uh, investigation thing that's going on in his childhood home. So there's like yeah. five or six different threaded timelines. Yeah, happening and we, all got, at once. we have them as children and all that stuff going, which is like two different timelines there. So there's it's jumping around a lot. Um, that's a high level of difficulty, but yeah, this is really cool, man. I, I love that it lays this first episode lays out all the players and from the jump, it's like, yeah, they all died. Um, and it's interesting to hear that the summary was calling it seeing the ghosts of his children. Um, the show itself would tell us at least eventually we get to it, that these are hallucinations that, that Roderick Usher is having, but much like Edgar Allan Poe's stories, I think it's cool that it can kind of operate in between it can it can be a bit of both um right is it is it a hallucination or is it a ghost and that woman you talked about that he spe he speaks to in, in that flashback to 1979 she becomes a recurring character and she's one of the main sources of the supernatural seeming to be more than just hallucinations right because multiple people see her right she's in like she seems to be in multiple places at once like she she is though the character who seems magical in some way now, we haven't watched the rest of the series yet to get it, it, you know, what kind of explanations might come for that. So we don't know the source of that supernatural element. Um, but everything else you could almost write off as manifestations of guilt that may not be supernatural. Um, it's borderline, right? Like a lot of stuff in Poe's stories. But uh, I, I love that it plays in that space. Yeah. And to talk about the fall of the House of Usher as a, as its own story, I feel like we're getting so much more context for why Roderick Usher as a character would have all this baggage and all these things that he's dealing with. And, you know, yeah. obviously taking liberties again and, and blending well, they've, added, they've added a bunch yeah. of characters that yeah. didn't exist as part of the house. But yeah. But getting that and then seeing the madness creep in because of that guilt is even is amplified even more. And I love the way that like he interacts with some of his children that he's seeing that are like dead in that house with with um dupin in the room yeah and really, he's like really reacting funny. to them but dupin doesn't see them and the way that that's kind of you know that mostly clear. plays out in the next few episodes but in this first one it's his mother he says uh yeah she's standing right behind you and then i love that moment where dupin's like i've heard about these high powered negotiating tactics where that you, know, you try and get someone to look behind them he's like i'm not gonna look behind me and then like she like moves and walks away it was very those are, I, I would I would point to those as some of the creepiest moments in the show uh, are the the stuff in the house and the way that they'll like pop in and, you know, jump some scares. Of, yeah, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's it's uh, at times, you know, it's it's like I said, it's it's kind of over the top. It's kind of loud when, with its scares, but like they work. Yeah, it's good. And, and so, like, you know, that's that's the big setup. We ha and then the the mysteries that are sort of still out ongoing are who is the informant? And then also this Virik Verna character, I think. Yeah. Uh, what is her role here? Why is she predicting this? Like that's all... the big mystery, honestly, yeah. of the show. I think, and then why because... does she keep showing up and and like and what is she doing? Killing like, the kids. I, I think she's yeah. clearly some sort of avenging spirit for what? Right, for like killing these kids, sins of the of the family or something like yeah. that. I guess. Was she real in 1979 as the bartender? Because she was already acting a little strange, and she says something about this being a space out of time when they're talking. I don't know if you remember that line. I do. So yeah. it's like, is that? Wait a minute. What does that mean? Um, 
So yeah, she's really mysterious and like what performance we are getting from her. Like you don't like it's it's like you get a little bit early, but like as we play out through these episodes, she gets to do so many different things. So much range, right? So many different characters. She's playing like six different characters, basically. She's been good in all of his work. Um, But this is like, yeah, she's really getting to to be like, again, six different people and and totally change accents and and demeanors and things like that. And then she can do creepy really well. She has these moments where like the reveal happens for the children um, in each of these episodes that we have coming up. And it's always like, holy fucking shit, this is kind of yeah. scary. Well, let's focus on this one. So we get these, we get some early references to something has happened to this boss of Roderick's. And we see shots of the wall. And we can think to what we know from Casco Amontillado and start putting two and two together here. So I think we're no, you know where we're going with that. I guess I won't say oh, yeah. any more than that. But like, definitely, um, we also get all this stuff that plays out at the house. And I thought it was really interesting that the mother of Roderick is named Eliza, which we know from covering Poe last week is his actual mother's name. Um, So there's a lot of just like, that's like, I just feel like a little Easter egg almost that Flanagan's putting in. Then having the other guy be named Longfellow, this is like one of, you know, uh, one of the writers that um, Poe was potentially feuding with in his life. So I thought it was funny that like Flanagan puts him into the show a little bit, makes him kind of detestable. That felt almost like a, Hey, if Edgar Allan Poe was alive to see this, he might appreciate this. <laughs> I put one sure. of his enemies in the show and made him someone who was detestable. <laughs> but and it's rewarding for people who are big Poe fans, right? It's I think like, that you know, too. Those sure. nice little Easter eggs and references, and that's I would say that this show does that in a major way. And I think that we're in the we have been for such a long time in the age of Easter eggs and the age of of a wink and a nod and everything. Like yeah, that. it's been happening forever. It feels kind of postmodern in that way. Like there, it's it's operating on this other level. Yeah. It's almost outside of the story. It's for the fans, right? Like this, that that's like stuff for the Poe diehards. Mm-hmm. But it's cool. Like I don't I don't like I think some people think that cheapens it in some way, but like I don't and and I also don't think it's not that kind of story. That's who the that's not the kind of story it is, but yeah. like I love the idea of it being like it can be that and also a really good drama and also everything else. Like it doesn't have to be one thing or the other. I understand like calling attention to something kind of and like connecting it in that way can make it feel like not its own piece of art, which is kind of a postmodern thing. But, um, you know, I appreciate it. And again, it's that kind of show that that I think it's people find it rewarding. And I think most audiences um if they hear you know lenore or something like that like they can connect that with poe and then people appreciate it and it makes you feel like already invested as a fan of the work uh because you have that background and then and then you can kind of extrapolate out and then people who don't know when they go looking at behind the scenes stuff they read that kind of stuff and they're like oh it's so cool what a fun reference and i think people just like that i agree Uh, i love that we get these little these little moments that are themselves adaptations of sort of like certain plot lines and so like the whole thing that plays out with his mother with, with their mother where she like may, maybe dies maybe you know it says resurrection in that in that plot synopsis again but like it's unclear whether or not she was actually dead or if they just actually didn't get it right um they bury her in the backyard and then in this big over-the-top moment there's this raging thunderstorm and you know he hears a noise and goes over to the window and looks out and then he does this like point he's like oh look at that um it was just so over the top but like that mimics the story of the fall of the house of usher like the the titular story we kind of get it out of the way early um and i'll be curious to see if they return to this idea but like that she had been falsely buried and she's break broken out now and comes for them like that's what happens in the story and we're already doing that episode one so now it's like where do we go from here different character in in the original story madeline sure. is the character. yeah because it was madeline 
which by the way we keep hearing about madeline's downstairs and she's moving around down there and like so gonna say, something's gonna it, play out with her in later episodes because we don't know what's going on with her it's really fun whenever they talk about madeline and she's like this genius and she's mm-hmm. like this like mastermind that's worked out all this stuff she's good in every timeline but the 1979 version of her is my favorite i think like she yeah. is scary and she's like uh, forceful, right? She's like, "This is what you're gonna do, Roderick. Like, we're yeah. this is how we're gonna figure." Well, you could just tell there's a level of ruthlessness in Madeline that doesn't even exist in Roderick, at least at that time. Right. Yeah. So to circle back on the the whole like Trump family thing, um, I don't. I, it's not a perfect fit. I think that a lot of these people honestly are more likable, uh, <laughs> even as they're detestable. Um, they're a little more interesting. But I, I I love like one of the things that connected it for me was um, Camille when she's doing her talking about her spin and she's like, oh, Hannity knows what side of the bread is Dick's buttered on or something like that. Like the idea that Fox is playing ball with them and just all this corruption. Um, I thought it was it was a very fun way of playing with that. Um, and then uh, making them a farm pharmaceutical dynasty, too. I thought that was really clever because of a lot of the big pharma shit that we've seen go down. I think like it's there's there's fewer bigger villains out there than a lot of these big pharma executives who, you know, are well known for pricing out the cost of life saving medication so that they can make billions and people die and then people die by the thousands. And that's what Lupin's whole thing's about. Right. And, you know, so often in the real world, we see that like when you start having these deaths that, that that number in the thousands, it becomes like a statistic and people don't people don't hold anyone accountable accountable for it because it seems like it couldn't possibly go back to like one decision that was made. Uh, is his name Lupin? I thought his name was like Dupin. D-U-P-I-N. It's Dupin. Dupin. You're right. Dupin. Yeah. Dupin. Yeah, yeah, I said Lupin. If you've seen Succession too, it reminds me of that. In a way, Succession oh. is doing a lot of the same stuff where they're, they're ta- you know, these big, powerful families, the way that they... Um, talk about the media is hilarious in the way that they can control the media at times um and and kind of what the public uh you know consensus is on something but yeah getting into these these pharmaceutical companies too it's not it's not just like withholding drugs as well it's like giving bad batches and and all yeah. this other crazy shit how they're tested in. yeah like yeah yeah it's, drug it's dealing with a lot of that it's getting into um, a lot of ethical areas that is very modern like i said you know it's it's, it's really poking at a lot of things that we take for granted in our society and often get swept under the rug. Like this summary said, like opioid addiction and like the idea of pushing drugs on people who, you know, eventually wouldn't, you know, maybe it's not the best drug for the for the right case or whatever, but they push it because it's making them money. And uh, yeah. it turns into or ignoring known side effects because they want to make the money and like, you know, all kinds of stuff like that is all that's all very real. Anyway, yeah, I love how that's all playing out. Uh, one other thing to touch on before we move on from this episode, we hear Roderick get some news from his from his doctor, and we're kind of like, "What was that about?" And we we know that it's going to be important, and we do find out later on that he's gotten this diagnosis. And this diagnosis is that he has this like vascular dementia, and it's causing the hallucinations but we don't actually get that in episode one. So in episode one, it kind of just seems like some really supernatural shit is happening. Um, and maybe it is. I don't know. <laughs> is it uh, the episode? The end of episode one, though, is where he he does fall on the ground and he's bleeding, or is that a different episode? Yeah, I think he sees the the like clown looking guy in the car. Oh yeah, that's what car. I was going to talk about. Yeah, it's like a big jump scare kind of moment. Falls over, looks up, sees the raisin, he's at Raven, and says, uh, "You know, it's time. It's time." Yeah, that that whole ending there was pretty crazy too because we're seeing as you know the Fortunato 
the company is called Fortunato, but we're seeing like a representation of what like is in post story. We get like a jester, yeah. uh, somebody dressed like that. And then a couple uh, of predictions. I think that he's going to be dressed up that way eventually when when this man is killed okay. for whatever reasons. We had a party, so they, they were dressed yeah. up as a costume party. We already know that because they're dressed up as the Gatsby, like great Gatsby. Um, so that's my guess. That's going to be a costume that he, he wore. And then um, the other the other prediction I have um, and maybe this is obvious, but and and maybe they'll they'll subvert it in some way. I don't know if there's actually an informant. I, this might just be something he did because he knew it was gonna it was gonna fuck with him. Definitely, could and be. Yeah. He, I don't think he knew that it was gonna lead to what it led to. But you know, we get this fifty million dollar bounty gets mm-hmm. put out, and um, By all this shit starts yeah, going down. The family, yeah. Um, I think that it's very possible that he he made up the idea of an informant because he just wanted turmoil in the family and them to kind of turn on each other because he knew that they would. He knew that it would get like stricken from the record in exactly. the court. So he was like, I can just say that. And then and we hear how good of a how good of a district attorney he is and everything like that. So like he would know well, and it's his to... life work. He's been going after this family like his whole life, as we see in these flashbacks. So what he's doing isn't an accident in the scenario, even though he's like, oh, you're right, your honor and all that other stuff. And yeah. he backs off. It's all says, meticulously it planned because he's the detective character. Like it's exactly. all a plan. Exactly. Yeah, so episode two, um, moving into that one, is The Mask of the Red Death. In 1979, Dupin investigates grave exhumations linked to a drug trial. The younger Roderick, living with Madeline, his first wife, Annabelle Lee, and young children, Frederick and Tamerlan, fails a pitch of Ligadone to Fortunato CEO Rufus Griswold, who succeeded Longfellow. In the present, Perry, Frederick, and Pym must deal with environmental concerns involving their properties, when Frederick insults Perry, Perry decides to host a masquerade-themed party at one of the condemned properties to prove his worth, using water from the facility's tanks to signal an orgy. Roderick, suffering from catacil, pins hope on Victorine's experimental heart mesh, while Madeline seeks to create AI using Lenore's memories. Perry invites Frederick's frustrated wife, Mor- Morella, to his party, planning to seduce her as revenge. Verna arrives at the party in disguise and tries to convince Perry to stop the party to no avail. The sprinklers spray turn out to be acid and chemical waste, the consequence being death for all guests, including Perry. Verna gives Perry a kiss as he dies. What a fucking episode, man. Um, this reference to the story is such an interesting one. because we read. I read the story, you know, obviously leading up to this. Such an iconic one, you know, and darkness and death and decay and the red death held inimitable domain overall. Something we've heard referenced in The Shining. Mm-hmm. Such a such a like this is one of the I think most of, of many, but one of the most classic post stories. Yeah. And I was like, he's got to nail this one and it's got to be done in a really interesting way. And, and I think he does because. At the heart of the story is this idea of wealth and privilege and just like the the contempt that these people hold for everybody else who's suffering. And they're just, you know, having their parties, they're enjoying their, their relative safety. Um, but then something comes in and, and gets in there. And in the story, it's a manifestation of death. It seems to be like a walking corpse, but it is a vector of this red death plague that is everybody else outside of this party is suffering from. And um, it spreads and it kills everybody in the party. And so going into this episode, I keep hearing about this. We're going to have this party. It's going to be this orgy at midnight. 
And I'm like, oh, this is not going to go well. You hear about the chemicals and you're like, well, definitely going to be the chemicals. Yep. Um, so you get a good sense of what you're going to see. Like it's setting you up the whole time. And I'm like, okay, let's, let's see it. And when it finally happens, I couldn't believe how it, like how good it was. Like it was so upsetting. It was so disturbing. They went full grotesque. Yeah, it was absolutely grotesque. Like the the way that the the music crescendos to it, we got uh, closer by Nine Inch Nails has been like, yeah, you know, remixed, Redone, and we got yeah. this version of it. And it's like, of course, you play that during the you know the orgy scene. Um, the the sprinklers come on. It is so horrifying. See all these people like get drenched in acid, and then the 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 thing that really sold it on me is when the music cuts out. And everything's gone, and it's just this mass of like writhing bodies of these people who are still alive and in the process of dying. Yep. And it's steaming, and it's silent, Welching and it's just, and, yeah. and you're just looking, you're just forced to look at it. And I was like, this is one of those scenes, and this is so hard to do in this day and age. This is one of the scenes that, like, I just, I'm like, I'm never going to forget seeing this. Mm-hmm. And for Mike Flanagan to pull that off, you know, it, it's really incredible. And I think this is going to be a scene that our, it, we're going to talk about with Flanagan and his career going forward, because I, this was really something. Yeah. And, and to talk about just like absolutely going for it, right? Like these characters are like just letting loose in every way. There's the nudity and the, the grotesque nature of like eventually what we get is like on the other side of the spectrum with that, yeah. right? Like you're seeing these like super taboo things, but then you're getting like, the most grotesque version of what like everything's bloody and wet and and like he's creating um, the biggest visual juxtaposition that you could have done between these like beautiful people this excess it's all but it's all flesh based right like it's it's the beauty of the flesh it's and it's reveling in it literally mm-hmm. um and then you the the cut that just makes the the cut to the flesh being destroyed in front of you right um that much hard like like it makes it even worse right like in every way it creates this punch and again like it wasn't a surprise you could have done this in a way where you weren't expecting it and i don't think it would have hit as hard because it had been growing in your mind because like everybody knows when you're watching it you're like you know it's coming you're like right. oh man this is about to get really bad but you're not you're still not ready for it it does something in your animal brain, right? When you're seeing yeah. nudity and sex and all this other stuff. And then the other opposite side of that is like fight or flight. And you're seeing yeah. like people just like in agony and, and like in like just gruesome scenarios. Um, yeah. And to go to that length, I was like, okay, so episode two, we know what kind of story we're going to get and how the lengths of, to which I'll take it. I read some, some uh, quotes from Flanagan that I want to touch on here. He said, quote, a lot of stuff I do is a slow burn. The fall of the house of Usher is a brush fire. It's an explosion. It's an aggressive rock and roll and over the top and just violent and insane and horrific as anything I've ever done by a lot. We're going to pull all the stars from the from the intrepid group of actors and some new faces and we're just going to fucking jam. Uh, He said, we want just buckets of blood pouring out of the ceiling on page two and we're just going to go ballistic and we're going to do it all uh, to the music of one of the most intensely effective gothic horror writers. This is what we've been craving, a chance to go ballistic on something. The entire catalog of Poe is wide open. It's all public domain. We can cherry pick whatever we want and put it into one giant, crazy, heavy metal riff that's just blood-soaked and wild. In a sense, we get to blow off steam after five very emotional years, and it lets me play in a corner of the genre I haven't uh, gotten to play in in a long time. It's a relief, really. It's fun to have fun. Hell yeah, man. That is a perfect encapsulation of what he's done here. 
Um, I love that. It, 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 it is all of those things. Um, and you can tell this is stuff that's been building throughout the pandemic and watching what's been playing out in our country, I think. And, and I think he's referencing that a little bit. Um, and it's it's um, it's so well done. And I think this is the moment so far that I've seen. There's been there's lots of moments, great moments throughout this show. But this is the one that's like that moment is going to stick with me forever. <laughs> so, so, you know, if you're going into this show, be ready for that. It's going to stick with you. Yeah, the effects work is really impressive too. Like just the way, yeah, and like you said, the absolutely. way that they shot it, the slow motion way that he's looking up as the sprinklers are about to come on and it's coming down and it's just this moment of release and then it's like the complete opposite. Um, and, and then she we have- sets it up too when she comes, because so we should say the figure is this Verna character who shows up and she's wearing the skull mask um, and she has this moment with um, Prospero, um, Perry. Is it, so it's Perry Prospero or is that a nickname? Yeah. Or like, I it's a nickname, understand. yeah. Perry it's a nickname. Okay. Is, is a shortened, yeah. So there's this moment where she's like talking to him about how everything is best before you get to the moment and then everything after is not as good. <laughs> and like, yeah, we're about to see that. Um, so she's like telling him to enjoy it. Um, but also like telling him a little bit like it doesn't have to be this way. She has these moments where she like kind of warns the kids. What's her motivation with that? So is- it feels like she takes a little bit of pity on them although she's not sparing them. She's like, this is still going to happen. But it's also like their own folly that she's playing into, but it's like unclear how much she's causing it. I have a theory. Versus, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. like, it's unclear. But um, she she's an interesting, because she represents death in the story, right? The Mask of the Red Death is like literally death. Exactly. Um, She is taking pity and she's like, tell maybe tells the wait staff so they can escape. Mm-hmm. Um, So she she is like a, little more targeted i guess she's absolutely going after the family right like that's what i mentioned before it seems like she's some manifestation of like sins of the family she's some vengeful spirit it seems based on the fact that if you make the character in Poe's story that is a phantom like it's a you know yeah. some sort of it's not there when they pull the the, the mask off it's a it's a it was a ghost basically so I you thought make, it was like a, basically a corpse. Like the, the, it looked like it was a mask, but it's not a mask. It's like actually is a corpse. But when they take the mask off and take the cloak off, there's nothing there. Like there was nothing underneath the cloak. Yeah. Um, at least as, that's how I interpreted Poe's story. Um, so to make her character, who we see multiple times after this, that sort of supernatural, I have no question that she, she's supernatural in some way. So that's my theory is that she's some sort of, they wronged her in some way. And she's just like as a spirit or some supernatural entity coming back to to get back at the sins of the family. Yeah, but the question becomes, was she was she actual person in the flashback? And that's who gets wronged? Or was she already some sort of manifestation, spirit, demon? Who knows? Um, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, that I don't I'm know. curious, man. Um, uh, I did want to talk to you about like the way that, you know, Poe's story, it's, it, you know, it's that out of touch, rich sort of affluent uh you know nothing can touch us within the gates here we're, we're in this abbey i think they're in and they're like nothing nothing else can get us in here and how they feel so powerful and so like free to do anything they want yeah. but how like clearly vulnerable they are um because if one thing shifts um like so, you know somebody infiltrate the red desk it, it makes its way in there they're all dead within minutes um yeah. and just how fascinating it is and then for flanagan to change it from a plague I think it's like with the COVID of it all, I think was yeah, a, it was, was a good choice. Um, well, and, the, and it still works in a sense because so much about, there's in the story that it's the red room 
right? Where mm-hmm. people, they don't want to go in there. And that's where a lot of this, like, that's where the Red Death is. That's In Poe's story, I love the, the like, it's like stained glass in each room. There's like a purple, blue, yellow, all green. I, I thought that it's so, like, you can just imagine that sort of thing in each room. And they're afraid to go in that final room, like you yeah, said. Yeah, seven colors. And they're all, like, primary colors. And I was thinking that, like, honestly, back to the Haunting of Hill House, remember there was, like, primary colors in a lot of those rooms? So I was like, I think that was a reference to this. Could be. Is my suspicion. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's so cool. But then like the the red blood of the mass of bodies that we see at the end, I think was like that visual reference to the red room of the story and the yeah. red death. Like, there is so much red. By the way, we, we you know, it would have been gruesome if we if you just cut away and never seen that room again. But for Arthur Pym to then go in and like do his yeah. initial oh, investigation. Man. Uh, and so he's like picking through bodies and people are like gra- reaching out and um, uh, Frederick's wife, I can't think of her name right now. She like grabs yeah. him and, and like just the way he works his way through. Uh, it's it's like Ooh, we get to I see it. I thought she got out. I was confused because I thought she had gotten out, but I guess we never actually saw her get out. I kept um, asking. I kept being like, did she make it out? Did she make it out? And yeah. then you know, we get the reveal. Clearly she, she didn't. That was crazy, man. Yeah. What a, what a moment. What a, what a cool episode. Um, you touched on how sexual it was. I was a little bit surprised. That's like one thing I wouldn't have expected from a Poe adaptation. But it, the show continues to just lean into that. Yeah. Um, it's it, it's part of the, it's like having fun and being modern, right? It feels very not gothic. It feels very not old school to yeah. have it be so over the top sexual <laughs> I, I really really didn't expect it and then for it to go to the orgy and, and like mm-hmm. for us to see all of that and then the way that like frederick's wife was into it and she wanted to like get out yeah that was all super again taboo and that's the that's the envelopes that horror plays with right it's like like seeing these these scenarios and the the things the recesses of people's minds and things like that like yeah. things like it shows representations of that and then there's a part of me that's like expressing your sexuality and wanting to to be open and and pursue things like that obviously she's in a committed relationship so it's a little different but then she's punished for it right like if you want to go to an orgy she didn't i didn't see her necessarily doing anything that deserve was deserving of getting this well she gets warned she gets warned by verna to leave but she doesn't yeah um at least we didn't see her get out successfully so i assume that means she she didn't immediately act on it so maybe it was just the fact that she was going to cheat or whatever. In, yeah, in but you could also argue she's benefiting from the wealth, right? Her life is built on that wealth that is perhaps ill-gotten gains or evil. Sure. Um, is what we're, is what we're, so she, a little bit of culpability there. Um, I don't think it's necessarily punished for that as much as it just is, um, like for her sexuality, as much as it is the excess of the moment, the over-the-topness, like the, the tone-deaf thing of, of just like doing this um and she knows it's wrong um in in many ways i think and yet she's drawn to it and so that, i think that's why ultimately you see that yeah. sort of fate for her she it's brutal too if we see her pulling her bandages off later in another episode oof so episode three is called murder in the room Morgue. in a flashback griswold takes credit for ligadone in the present pym identifies perry's body and a badly burned morella the only survivor roderick confesses to dupin that he hid the corrosive waste in those tanks to avoid federal regulations. Frederick's negligence in removing those properties resulted in Perry's death. Camille discovers that Victorian's illegal heart mesh tests on animals were unsuccessful. Verna poses as the first human test subject for Victorine, who books the illegal surgery without informing her girlfriend and co-worker, Dr. Ali Ruiz. 
Verna also poses as an escort for Tamerlan's husband, Bill, to fulfill Tamerlan's cuckold fetish. Leo believes he killed Pluto, the black cat of his partner Julius, in a drug-fueled stupor. Camille encounters Verna, posing as a security guard at Victorine's lab, who asks why Camille hates her half-sister, since the two are in fact similar. One of the tested chimpanzees mauls Camille to death. We touched on the story uh, already a good bit about how it's like one of the first detective stories. And it, the reveal at the end of the story is that it was this chimpanzee that committed the crimes and like committed these horrific murders um, that was like loose. And um, I love so, the, of course, when I like... saw those chimpanzees getting shown, it's like, OK, this, I know where this is going in some <laughs> sense. But I also kind of didn't because, man, does it play out in a really interesting way um, with Verna being tied into it and like embodying the chimpanzee. Yeah, she's yeah, it's that's really cool. Um, it happens again with the cat thing that we'll get to also. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, and we also see the 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 uh, cat cat Pluto, which is the name of the cat in the story, get murdered by uh, Leo, or, or it seems um, he wakes up and the cat's dead, been stabbed. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, just just really interesting. This is the this is the Camille heavy heavy episode though, right? And we see her. She has this weird relationship with her assistants where they're like. Yeah you know again very like sexual sex workers as well you know it's yeah. like part of the like contract they signed um, but it's like a weird like, power dynamic thing that like you could imagine people with this kind of wealth and power might be partaking well, and that's in why and... i think like the sex is so present is is it's like when you're this wealthy like this is the kind of shit people can do they can get they can like pursue their sexuality in over the top ways that like average people can't and that that level of excess is like beyond what we think is like, you know, even even within the realm of possibility for many of us. Um, and that's, uh, you know, there's a lot of those kind of things going on with like what we heard, you know, with fucking real life billionaires uh, getting away with crazy shit like that. So um, I think he's he's touching on some real shit. And like uh, I, one thing I wanted to say is that like Poe in his time was writing about the body and flesh and these horrors in a way that like a lot of polite society thought was, you know, gross and grotesque and like, you know, how dare he do this? He's pushing the envelope, even if it's wrapped in this, like otherwise kind of like yeah. proper mannered stylings. And that makes sense for the grandfather of horror, right? Transgressiveness and like doing like that, that's all in keeping. And it's cool to see Flanagan trying to adapt and do that in today's day and age. Absolutely. And that's, yeah, I think he's doing that in his own way. He's saying, I'm going to be transgressive and I'm going to go there and I'm going to do things that people are going to look at and say, you shouldn't do that. Um, and, and, and you shouldn't go there. And, but he says that that's the horror's job is to go there. Um, yeah. and, and fearlessly kind of get into that stuff. And he does. And to talk about uh, Rue Morgue, the Poe story, I thought it was so clever to to have like a supernatural entity. Something's going on. They, you know, this this child was shoved up into the or the the daughter was, it was shoved, a woman. Shoved up. I think it was a full. I mean, she was the daughter, but I think she was a full grown woman. She was stuffed <laughs> up into the into the uh, chimney, and uh, you know, so the whole time that's that misdirect that like unless you're incredible, unless you like put the book down and kind of really thought about it in the same way that like a Sherlock Holmes or you know Poirot um is going to figure something out that you might not have otherwise that idea of like oh it's a chimpanzee that escaped from the sailor that you yeah. know went on a killing spree because it learned human-like <laughs> behaviors and and then got frustrated and uh never could have seen that coming and what a cool interesting twist and just a batshit crazy story and then yeah, yeah. to tie it into this this version of events um 
I understood that she was like trying to maybe uncover what uh, Victorine was up to, but her motivations for being there and the, the, how quickly it felt like it, it unfolded um, as far as that investigation. She didn't do as much as investigating as I would have expected for a, a, um, you know, a story that's adapting this like Sherlock type character. Yeah, I think the Sherlock uh, type character, as you said, with Lupin, that's going to be a more overarching thing as we follow yeah. the detective story. I think mainly for here, it was just the death by chimpanzee. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and I did think it, I think actually think this episode, as far as like line by line, like things characters say, has some of the best writing of any of the episodes. Is this a lemon episode? There's the lemon diatribe yeah. which was fantastic so when life gives weird you and lemonade crazy. and, yeah, and it like, just goes yeah. and goes and goes <laughs> hashtag lemon limon you know uh what was it uh chalamet is going to be wearing lemon shoes uh, you know on the run like all this stuff and um and and, and then yeah the whole, oh, your competitors you're going to sue them for for making these like genetically modified lemons that you patented and they look like boobs that oh, <laughs> they like, look like yeah, you like engineer look more like boobs and stuff yeah it's so funny oh, good um, there was another line though that I absolutely loved. It was when Roderick was talking to um, I forget his name now. It's the like it's this new boss, um, and he's he's had the idea of the medicine, and he's like, "Well, we're gonna use it." And he's like, "An idea is nothing. An idea is a fart that your brain makes." Yep. <laughs> I was like, "Jesus, it's such a good line," and it also is so representative of the way that we see ideas being treated today. And the devaluing of art and the devaluing of people who come up with stories and how there is an attitude like that of out there of like completely devaluing this stuff. And I love the idea of a writer putting that into the story, right? Like it's in a setting where it's talking about something completely different, yet I'm thinking about AI and the devaluing of art and um and and how much often we see the people, like the writers, right? And this writer strikes um getting devalued. And their ideas being like, oh, of course, you, you, you're just the man who comes up with the ideas. I'll move you up from the mail room up a couple of floors. You know, like it's 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 insulting. Um, and I loved hearing that. And then, yeah, the an idea is a, is a fart your brain makes. It's just amazing. <laughs> well, and specifically like filmmakers too, like ha dealing with executives yeah. and, and authors have similar kinds of stuff, publishers and agents and things like that as well. But like all over the arts. Yeah. yeah. But in filmmaking, you have to deal with like executives who are like, look, you make the thing and then I market it and then it makes billions of dollars. And they, yeah. they think that they're the the engine behind what makes that yeah. go. And you're like, well, you know, the story is all about CEOs, right? Like it's yeah. all about the money people who have the real power. Um, and I love there's a whole thing where, where Camille was talking with Leo, I think it was. And she's talking about ushers and how ushers don't make anything. And he's like, oh, I make video games. And she's like, no, you don't. You pay people who make video games. We don't do anything. We don't actually make anything. And I love that. It was like this really cool, like, and it was also funny because they had had, they had had like edibles and they're like sitting on the couch. I thought that was really funny. Really good moment of clarity from her. And, um, and, and I like that because this is, this is the episode where she dies. But I also want to talk about that, uh, that, that, that mention of the cuckold moment, as they called it in the summary. I think it's really interesting what's going on with Camille too, because it's also, or it's not Camille there. Uh, it's the other sister, Tamerlan that she pays this woman to come in and like have like a normal conversation with her husband as yeah. if she is her basically where they ask each other about their days and stuff. And like, that seems to be the most uh, important part of it. Cause we don't ever see like the sex that, you know, happens afterwards. So to me, we know for sure that there's sex there. Do we, do I think that there is, I think she says like that comes later or something. And it's mentioned a couple times as if I think that does come later, but I don't think it's what's the most important ultimately because 
this is a character who is like incapable of doing i, I just don't think she can do it yeah and she's so fascinated she's like, by it she's she's turned it into a fascination so that's what she finds attractive in the moment and that's fascinating like looking at her like so these characters are all so fucked up mm-hmm. um you know they're so broken by this because it's like you feel kind of bad for the kids who are born into it and they're all just trying to like find a way to make their make their own mark in the world but they're set up for failure in a way because of the wealth they've inherited because of the system they've been born into they're like born guilty and broken and um yeah it's fucked up i i, I there's all these different angles that he's coming at this thing too and I, I we haven't even gotten like the gold bug episode which i know is coming later and i think is going to be the the one that's going to be all about her but like we're, we're he's starting to lay the foundations for that story when we have quite a few like like Easter egg kind of setups that are going on already, right? Like we we see this like artificial mesh heart pumping kind of thing, and we yeah. we can interpret like from post stories that we're going to be reading which which story that might be referencing, and then Goldbug, like you said, um, I can't remember the other one right now, but there's yeah. also the the Raven. Where's there's the cat because Leo kills the cat, and that's setting up next right. episode. Yeah. Well, that's the yeah the next episode. So yeah, they're they're doing tons of setup like that, and then there's also the Raven that we keep seeing, and the way that we know what the Raven represents in Poe's work, and what eventually that could lead to if they wanted to tell. That or story. is it's it's the whole thing of like, is it a manifestation of guilt, or is it right. something else, or is the it just themes a bird? Are there, yeah, the themes are there no matter what. But I'd be interested to see if we do see someone talking to a Raven in a in a, in a way. Oh, I feel like we got to right. Yeah. Um. Or or we see Verna as a manifestation of a Raven. I think that's probably coming at some point because she already does that with the cat next episode before we leave this one though the moment where camille is being is like facing down verna and like talking to her and like saying you're so fucking fired you're gonna you're dead you know how are you talking to me like how dare you talking to me like this um and the when when she like shifts over in front of the table and then jumps up onto it um in this like in a very like chimpanzee like pose and then start stalking toward her and the lights are like flickering and like coming on as she's like coming closer. So something clearly supernatural is happening. That was a horrifying and just fucking cool scene. And that was where I was like, we are getting an insane performance right now. <laughs> and I love it so much. She like goes full chimpanzee and she like rips her shirt open, just shows the scar as if she's been exper- experimented on as well. And like, she, yeah, she's like a representation of, again, the sins of what they're doing here and like the, th- the bad things that they keep doing. And how um, cool is that getting to like stalk across the table, like in chimpanzee mode and like be yeah. saying all this crazy shit to come. Like it was so good. And the effects again, I, I you know, we keep seeing the dead children like we we see um, Camille's t- face torn off like we see, you know, eventually the, the chimpanzees done that we see fucking fucking Prospero and his melted yeah. like when All he is out of focus standing behind him like that was fucking creepy as hell. Yeah. There's this red blob back there and you're like, what the fuck is that? Yeah, so the reveals keep being really cool. And then, uh, yeah, seeing Verna be the the ghost or whatever, this thing that's pursuing the family uh, is is pretty pretty wild and and you know i'm excited to see the reveal of like what they did to her or what you know i want to see more of that conversation in the bar really more than anything i'm yeah exactly i think there's more there i'm curious if it's something they did to her or if she is just somehow the manifestation of a of a society of a sick society and like some sort of vengeful spirit that is that is absent from any one particular wrong it's interesting too because they the Roderick and Madeline start out as innocents, right? Like they they're just kids, and their mom is you know going through a lot of but, stuff, and yeah, it's like they're kind of born into this connect. Well, it, it's like their ambition, right? So their ambition is what drove them to that. And so often when you hear about CEO billionaire origin stories, it's about someone who is just over the top ambitious and willing to do anything to get ahead, um, and you know 
there are no good billionaires. Um, and because to get that amount of wealth somewhere along the line, you're going to be doing some questionable shit. I mean, to maintain that level of wealth and, um, cause on its surface, in my opinion, it's unethical to be that wealthy in a society where there's so much suffering and inequity. Um, but we're getting into my leftist shit now. Um, <laughs> but, um, uh, but I think there's a little, I think, you know, Flanagan's getting at that. I think he's playing with the same ideas. And so, yes, we see them starting out in humble beginnings, but throughout Madeline, especially, especially, and she kindles it, I think in Roderick, they have this ambition and they feel like they're owed from their birthright ownership um, yeah. of this, of this company. And the idea that like, you know, Annabelle Lee, which is of course the reference to the famous poem, she keeps saying like, you got that check. You were able to pay for this stuff. You did that. How great is that? Um, so she's kind of saying like, it can be okay to not be at the top and to not get everything all the time. Right. She's telling him to quit his job at one point when things get kind of sketchy with the signatures yeah, and everything. Like, we should like get that. out of here, but they are too ambitious for that. And so ultimately yep. ambition is something that is seen as a moral good, I think in, in sort of American society. And here we are seeing the other side of that where we're saying, you know, this is not a new story to tell, but it's coming back to the idea of like, no, ambition can actually be bad sometimes. And I think that's the ultimate, you know, failing of, of, of Roderick and Madeline is their, their supreme ambition. It's the, that whole idea of like the balance between like the American dream and doing anything you want and becoming successful from nothing and everything like that. But then that, that, that whatever it takes some of the time to get to that level can then be taken to the extreme and, you know, we know extremes on all sides are usually not the way to go. So they go yeah. all the way to the extreme and then they end up, you know, you know, it seems like possibly walling up their this competitor to <laughs> yeah. them, you know. I'm really, really in, curious to see how that very, played out. But yeah, we'll see. Fortunato, very, like, very, like. Oh, another really clever bit of writing. Um, I think it's here, but maybe it's in the next episode. But it's with that character. He says to them, to Roderick, this is wartime. Only thing I want to hear from you is, sir, yes, sir. And I love that that was a revelation because we had heard Roderick say that in the future to the and family it shows that yeah. that's where he heard it. And then also that he has come full circle and is now basically this guy he's become what he hates. Um, and that's all just in the writing and just with this line, like, I think that's so clever. And again, like, the, the story, this, this show is really well written. So episode four is called the black cat. In a flashback, Dupin shows Roderick documents with his signature, which Fortunato forged. In the present, Leo adopts a black cat resembling Pluto from Verna to deceive Julius. Camille's death triggers a family crisis as they no longer have a PR leader. Roderick, Madeline, and Pym identify Verna as the culprit, whom Madeline recalls meeting on New Year's of 1980. Pym gives Frederick the locked burner phone Perry gave to Morella for the party. Frederick becomes paranoid that Morella was cheating on him. In an attempt to cope, he asks Leo for drugs. Roderick confides in Madeline about his diagnosis similar to their mother's. The new Pluto torments Leo amid Julius's concern over his excessive drug use due to grief over his sibling's death. Leo brings Verna to take back the cat and accidentally gouges Pluto's eye, with Verna showing the same injuries. He trashes the apartment to find Pluto, all of it being his hallucinations. Leo then falls to his death from the balcony as the real Pluto reappears. I would say that that it wasn't an accident that he knocked, that he popped out Pluto's eye also. Gouged out the <laughs> yeah, eye. That's what this summary said. But. You did it on purpose, and that is right out of the story. I was yeah. pretty shocked when I read that in the post story. Um, 
it's about it's so this story reminds me the most of the telltale heart mm-hmm. and i had never read this one so i didn't realize that he he that he wrote another story that in my opinion is very similar um with a little difference in that it's it, he talks about how He's like, oh, I have this great love of, you know, animals and anybody who's had a companion like a cat knows, you know, and all this stuff. And then like something just goes off in our narrator and all of a sudden he like hates the cat because it loves him. It was the, and, it's because of the alcohol, though. It's because of, yeah. he, he's he's abusing the alcohol and he's he's becoming, you know, very dangerous and like it's changing his brain chemistry or whatever. It's changed yeah. him. Uh, and so he's sort of a demon to the to and the he bottom. feels guilty about the alcohol use, perhaps, because it's a manifestation of guilt again to me. It is it is I am not lovable. So something that loves me unconditionally must be bad. And, and yeah. that's why he attacks it. And also he even says, like, when he when he does it, he's like, I wanted to commit the ultimate sin. I wanted to be un- unredeemable. Yeah. Um, he lashes so he out at something that. that loves him for sure. Like, that's definitely in the moral. That's such an interesting observation about people who do horrific acts and, like, what could be going on there in the psychology of it. Like, yeah. the idea that Poe was writing about this stuff in the 1800s is, is really astounding because I think there's some truth to this, you know, at its heart. And it's not just about animal abuse either, right? Like, it could be a spouse, could be whatever it is, like, lashing out and not being happy and, and like, it's fighting. the idea of someone who's doing something horrific, right? Yeah. And, and it, which is, like, always kind of a incomprehensible mindset to people. And, and it's tough and too the idea because... that Poe is, is pulling that apart and figuring out, like, why someone might do it. Yeah, and it's tough too because it's like, especially in the case of being an animal lover, know you're an animal yeah. lover, tons of people out there are, um, they're innocent, right? They do love yeah. unconditionally. And so to to then lash out at something like that is yeah. like, it's it's terrible. It shows your character. Of that, like he's like, th- that's why he does it. Then the cat's afraid of him because he lashed out. And I think that's the first thing he did was gouge the eye out, right? And when the, it set off the sort of the frenzied moment where he's, you know, busting through the wall with Hemsworth's ham, him, Hemsworth's hammer. <laughs> I meant the uh, post story. Which was hilarious. Yeah, I meant the post oh, story. Oh, in the story, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because he does that at first, but then he decides he's going to kill it later. Because then yeah. it's afraid of him, and then he, like, gets near it, and it, like, cut, it, like tries to, to scratch him. And that's when yep. he, like, tries to hang it, and then it progresses. It does hang it, I think. I think that's how he kills it. He, um yeah, so so there's that hor- horrible moment, um, and then there's the the moment where he's trying to kill it with an axe. His instead, wife, he accidentally kills his wife. <laughs> no, his wife stops him, and I I interpret it as his wife stops him, and then he continues the rage into her and kills her. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's not an accident. She tries to stop him from doing it, and so he kills her. And then it gets put in the wall with her. Yeah, and then yeah, he... and so then that's the telltale heart moment, except for it's like maybe real because um the cops come and also like that moment of like self-incrimination that we get yeah. too, um, where he's like, they're done. They're, they're like leaving. And he's like, Oh, the, the, the great craftsmanship of this house. And he's like knocking on the wall with a stick, you know, like right where the body is. Yeah. Um, and then the, you start hearing this like howling screeching from inside the wall, the men open it up and it's revealed that the cat was bricked up in the wall, which, you know, guess of Amontillado also like we talk about all these times that like, People get bricked up in walls. Very frequent in Poe's work, apparently. <laughs> or buried um, alive, yeah. Yeah, and being, being buried alive, right? It's that fear. Um, and then, yeah, uh, it, it, to me, this is all about guilt. Um, and this time it takes the manifestation of a black cat. And it's in the, in the show now. We can pivot to that. Um, it's unclear whether or not he's the one who kills it, but I kind of think he is in this, like, drug-filled rage. Um, and, and I think maybe for the same reason. That's me reading between the lines of, like, 
I don't think he thinks he's worth worthy of love. And so for a moment, he lashes out against this pet for, for, for daring to love him when he's so unlovable. Well, and in this case, too, it's like it's not just the love of the cat. It's the love of the owner of the cat, who's Julius, his his lover. Yeah. So he feels like maybe that relationship is going too smoothly. He's not you know, capable yeah. of love, whatever it is. And then he lashes out at not Julius, but the, the cat. And yeah. that obviously he realizes he needs to replace the cat. And then it cascades in a similar way from there. Um, to where like the cat yeah. is some cool cat moments too, where he like looks yeah. over at the cat and you see the gleaming eyes in the corner and like the whole thing about it being an apex predator as Verna's like laying all that out. I thought that was really cool. She's all those about dead how can, animals, like, how they like, can stretch their spines out and then they can like sh- shift their shoulders so they can squeeze into places. And yeah, all the dead animals they always land see. on their feet, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fucking cool. So if you're like a cat lover, this is gonna be a tough one for you to watch because of the violence with towards the cat. Um, but on the other hand, there's some cool shit about cats in here too that are also like makes them kind of scary, honestly. <laughs> yeah. It, it, again, like somebody abusing animals too. Like you lose sympathy. I lose sympathy for people faster than if they were hurting people some of the time. I don't know. It's it's very yeah, it's on true. the same level. I would say at least. Well, because they're so hope, helpless, right? And they right. rely on especially like domesticated animals. Yeah. This was this was a cool. I, was, I actually really liked Leo. The, you know, I think he's supposed to be likable. Mm-hmm. fuck up this you know he's, he just plays video games and gets gets high all the time well and his drugs are manageable until the trauma sets in and then and then he's like yeah. oh you have a problem so it's like you know guy who's into drugs makes video yeah. games and like oh man know. that reminds me of the really funny line from i think it was like episode two where prospero comes to him to supply the drugs and yeah. he's like uh he says can you move that kind of weight and he's like have you been watching narcos like yeah. move like what do you who do you think i am and he's like you should be by the way it's really good <laughs> a lot of netflix synergy with that with that uh plug yeah for sure. Su- super funny and then yeah the whole thing about like you know why do you think i have viagra i don't need that and then like eventually he's like yeah i have viagra i'll get you i gotta have, i have appearances to maintain or whatever yeah. like a reputation to maintain very funny just like line by line in this show is, is hilarious um, and it yeah. keeps like those moments of levity, like keep it fun, even while you're seeing some really horrific stuff. Well, and you mentioned the the in passing the the Hemsworth hammer thing. Uh, yeah. He's like, I'll get Hemsworth to send me another and hammer. And I think that's I Iron this Man's one. mask from like Iron Man 1, right? Isn't that the like the first mask Iron Man makes? And like when we first see it behind, it's like behind him when we first get introduced to Leo. I don't remember, but it's possible. Yeah, I, we I see don't a cut to it. it. That was where I first thought got the like Marvel reference. And then got later it. we see Thor's hammer. So I, I love that. Like the idea is that he actually just like friends with them and able to get stuff from them because he's so wealthy, right? Yeah. Oh, awesome. the, the fucking line where um, Roder- uh, Frederick comes over and he says, uh, oh, I like this place. It looks like an artisanal brewery. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's like, it's about to change. Yeah. Uh, it's just I, so funny. So like living in Portland, like it's so funny. Like truly that style is so frequently in breweries, but also in like places that I've lived and that it's like, uh, sure. you know, that if you're, if you're in an apartment in that part of town. And so I, I don't know that, that, that line just killed me. It was so funny. Yeah. The, uh, Mjolnir prop too. I remember thinking like, oh man, that's a, that's a sturdy Mjolnir prop that he got from Hemsworth. Cause he bashes yeah. every wall in the house and the ceiling. And, yeah. uh, it's crazy. He's getting all torn up from the cat too. It's like biting him and stuff. And then, yeah, this builds to Verna. When he gets scratched on his eye. Ooh. Oh yeah. If you don't like eye stuff, I you know, warning because it's fucking horrifying. Or a couple of times that my fiance to to call her that for the first time on the on the hey. podcast, uh, she had to look away. There were like you know the cat scratch in the eye. The when yeah. when um that uh, Frederick's out. when Frederick's <laughs> wife is taking off the band or he's taking her oh, bandages yeah. off and stuff that kind of stuff. She she was like, tell me when it's over. It's fucking gross. Yeah, yeah. there's some real gross out moments. Oh, you know another hilarious moment. 
uh, when uh, Roderick is looking at the security cameras and he tells Pim to enhance. <laughs> and he's like, oh, it's so good. It's so, <laughs> he's so like, good. I can zoom in, but it doesn't enhance it. So great. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> and again, Hamill's just like killing it, hamming it yeah. up. He's getting, he's this very like grunting, like uh capable kind of butler-ish character lawyer fixer but he's like he's the fixer the enforcer there's everything oh yeah he's got a cool role and i'm excited to see like what else we get from him yeah man i loved it um yeah and then like the moment where leo says that you know his boyfriend he says uh he's dead he just doesn't even know it um but in the sense that like he's gonna break up with him because he dared to like question the drug drug use and we've seen that now in a few of these characters right with camille and how she reacts when her her assistants are like oh we're actually in love and like she's like you're fired um it's just like you can't anything to challenge them um is seen as as unforgivable ultimate selfish people right mm-hmm. like everything revolves around them anything else yeah, would so be even if they like... start to seem somewhat likable though he'll do these little things to remind us of just how awful these people and are. one of the things that's like borderline unbelievable is that like a lot of them came into the wealth like f- fairly recently in the grand scheme like some of them like 18 i think um yeah. leo well, got, that's like he, like roderick them. like reaches out to them i guess to like let them know yeah he has this whole thing where he like he's like he welcomes them into the family and gives them a, their first loan if they're his blood which seems then, like a great yeah. thing but is actually like the worst thing that happens to all of them they make a point of saying like leo and i think camille they didn't always know this life so you would think they would have yeah. some shred of like, the humanity bastards, from before yeah but yeah. you would think that that would allow them to have this the shred of humanity from before remember what it was like what it was like before yeah. they were wealthy, No, i think but... they're implying that they did and that's the only reason that they weren't as like insane as um prospero was because he got it when he was 16. yeah i don't know it's it's like they're they're about as unhinged as you can be you know yeah we haven't really got the other one's stories yet we haven't got stories of either of the i guess it would be the it would be um frederick and tamerlan, tamerlan would be yeah. the two not bastards because all the rest are the, are the bastards right yeah victory well, they were the born to when they when roderick and his first wife were struggling they were actually born and, and going through some of it and i think we learned that frederick is has is sick in some way or has some disease or so. like they, they mentioned that like um they can't pay for their medical bills when he and was that was young, a cool they, moment they showing off uh, Lupin's uh, abilities of deduction, as we were talking yeah. about. Is he's like standing in their house and he's just like deducing all these things about them, and he can tell how poor they are. He says, "You know, you live, you live hand to mouth like me," and and he's really showing off. It's it's a very Sherlock like moment, right? Like he's like, "I noticed there were two coffee mugs in there." Does that mean you were both up with them last? You know, he has all these like deductions that he makes. So there was a, one other thing that I sh- I meant to mention before, but uh, did you notice Camille's hair is also like gray or white, mm-hmm. and it's like very fashionable obviously right now but uh it was also i read a reference to in the post story they find like tufts of white hair or or gray hair at the crime scene and that's one of the clues that uh dupin yeah, uses that have been to, pulled out yeah so so like i guess that is like another connection like her hair so color. that's why i was wondering why that's cool yeah i like that yeah because because in the story it's like no you know it, the, the signs of inhuman strength and is that the amount of hair that was pulled out is like you can't pull that amount out, I guess. Yeah, um, that's cool. That's a cool little reference, man. All right. So we got to kind of wrap this up now. We've only covered the first four episodes, but we got four to come. We'll have a special guest on with John Langan to wrap this thing up. I'm really excited to see how this thing comes, you know, brings it all together. I hope it sticks the landing. 
uh, excited, man. It's it's this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, and and hitting at the perfect time, right? Like I said in a previous episode, if we get Flanagan dropping some sort of mini series every Halloween or every other Halloween, no, not every Halloween, but every two Halloweens or something, I'm for it because it feels like it's becoming a tradition. It's yeah. festive. I love getting in the spirit and and having new horror stuff to watch. Yeah. Um, and I will definitely be watching other horror stuff later tonight. So I'm looking forward to the rest of Halloween. He's yeah. he's one to watch, man. He's he's definitely you know he keeps doing these Stephen King adaptations. We talked about him might be doing the Dark Tower in the future. Still, um, on. I think it's confirmed. I, it's going to happen. He's still still working on that with Netflix. So we'll see. I'm excited. Hell yeah, man! If you enjoyed this episode, listener, uh, please let us know in the form of a rating and review. We'd love to hear from you in that way. Uh, leave us five stars on whatever app you chose to listen on. Tell us that you listened to this episode. Um, if you're on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe to our channel. Um, leave us comments. You know, we love to in- in- interact with people there. Um, have a conversation about this thing. How- let us know how you like these episodes. And be sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of those at Ink to Film. We're also on TikTok and Blue Sky, all kinds of places. If you'd like to support this podcast in another way, we are on Patreon, patreon.com slash ink to film, where we have all kinds of bonus content that we release monthly. Our most recent one that we recorded is a query quest episode where I talk about where I'm at in the querying process for my novel. But usually we're doing episodes that are adaptation adjacent or other adaptations of work. Um, now that we've opened up the, you know, the, the Edgar Allan Poe um uh, box we can we can do all kinds of stuff because I know there's all kinds of different adaptations I think there's multiple fall of house of ushers even that we could look at yeah and there's like six Roger Corman Poe adaptations like he did a ton of them with like Vincent Price and Peter yeah. Laurie and like all kinds of people that we've talked about in the past like horror legends and stuff so that'd be fun to dig into so a lot of that will be on Patreon so if that sounds interesting to you please uh, support us on there and thank you to Mark Vandermeulen for the use of our intro and outro music it's the track The Hunt All right, man. Looking forward to it next week. Going to be a lot of fun. Um, I will be just returning to Portland. Um, Hopefully, I'll leave myself just enough time to get ready to record that thing. Um, Yeah, thanks for listening. Until next time. Keep adapting.